It's Monday, October 28th. Welcome to Skim This. We're breaking down the most complex stories of the day and giving you the context on why they matter. President Trump announced yesterday that the leader of the Islamic State terrorist organization had been killed in a U.S. military raid. So does that mean the threat of ISIS is also dead? Not quite. We'll explain. Then we'll tell you why abortion rights advocates are laser-focused today on the show-me state. And finally, the internet is decades old. But like fine wine, internet scams are getting better with age. We're here to make your evening smarter. Let's skim this. Today's episode is brought to you by CarMax, the way it should be. The most complicated story today is about ISIS. On Sunday morning, President Trump made a big announcement from the White House. A U.S. military raid had led to the death of the leader of ISIS, a guy named Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. U.S. Special Operations Forces executed a dangerous and daring nighttime raid in northwestern Syria and accomplished their mission in grand style. Trump said capturing or killing Baghdadi had been a, quote, top national security priority, and that after Baghdadi's death, the world is, quote, a much safer place. But even if you've been following the news about ISIS, Baghdadi's never really become a household name like Osama bin Laden, the former head of al-Qaeda. So today we're going to get into what you need to know about Baghdadi, what his death means for ISIS, and what it means for the countries fighting to destroy the terror group once and for all. Let's get into it by talking about Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi. Baghdadi grew up in Iraq, in the city of Samarra, which is a little north of Baghdad. His parents were reportedly really religious, and Baghdadi took that to the extreme. He earned the nickname The Believer after criticizing family members for not sharing his religious intensity. After the U.S. invaded Iraq in 2003, Baghdadi helped start an insurgent group that pretty quickly put him on the U.S.'s radar. A year later, he was arrested and spent 10 months in U.S. custody. After his release, he reportedly joined with an al-Qaeda affiliate, which eventually broke off and became the Islamic State in Iraq. And Baghdadi quickly moved up through its ranks. The big turning point in his life, though, came in 2014, when al-Qaeda cut ties with the Islamic State in Iraq. Baghdadi saw an opportunity and basically decided to go to war with al-Qaeda. He ordered his followers to seize land in Syria and northern Iraq and to impose religious laws there. This, in effect, created an Islamic State, or caliphate. At its peak, that caliphate spanned 34,000 square miles, and the group started organizing systems to collect taxes and provide public services, almost like a real government. But all the while, Baghdadi was reportedly really paranoid that his supporters would betray him, and he was rarely seen in public, during which time the U.S. and its allies dismantled the ISIS caliphate that he'd helped to create. And this weekend, Baghdadi's time on the lamb ended, thanks in part to Iraq, Turkey, and the Kurds, who all reportedly shared intel with the U.S. to help track him down. So what does Baghdadi's death mean for the future of ISIS? Well, that's up for debate. On the one hand, it could speed up the terror group's demise, since after Baghdadi blew himself up with a suicide vest, U.S. troops reportedly made some important finds. We were in the compound for approximately two hours, and after the mission was accomplished, we took highly sensitive material and information from the raid, much having to do with ISIS, origins, future plans, things that we very much want. The same thing happened after the 2011 raid to kill Osama bin Laden. 
Intelligence analysts found hundreds of thousands of documents in bin Laden's compound, including letters and other materials that helped them better understand how al-Qaeda operated and what it was planning. But ISIS has less of a top-down approach. Baghdadi was known more for the way he inspired terrorists, as opposed to directly overseeing individual terror attacks. So it could be that the evidence the U.S. uncovered may not reveal much about any possible future attacks. And with Baghdadi out of the picture, there's a chance other supporters of the ISIS ideology will try to make a name for themselves. Kirsten Fontenrose is the former senior director for Gulf Affairs at the National Security Council, and she's now at the Atlantic Council. Since ISIS is a, is a brand for a worldview, the bad side of this is that I think we're going to see additional planning by cells who have even tenuous ties to the group trying to prove that they are still viable as a movement in order to boost recruitment and fundraising and to ensure that they are not relegated to sort of the, the dustbin of insurgency history. Meanwhile, the other thing that needs to be figured out is what to do with the estimated 10,000 ISIS detainees currently being guarded by Kurdish-led troops in Syria. In recent weeks, the Kurds have had to move their troops to fight back against the Turkish army. And so far, a hundred of those ISIS detainees they'd been guarding have escaped. And finally, there's still the threat of former ISIS fighters who originally traveled from all over the world to fight in Syria and Iraq. Some of them have been captured, but others have already gone home or are trying to get there. The U.S. has been pretty active in tracking down and bringing back American ISIS fighters. But other countries like Egypt, Morocco, and Tunisia are all having a much harder time. So is Europe. By one estimate, up to 4,300 European nationals left home to join the Islamic State. And if they're now trying to get back, they could still pose a security threat, regardless of whether Baghdadi is alive or not. So finding those former fighters is definitely still on the to-do list for the U.S. and its allies. So too will be wiping out other ISIS spinoffs around the world. One country ISIS has spread to is Afghanistan. There are currently an estimated 2,000 ISIS fighters there. That's a lot, but the U.S. has helped Afghanistan fight them for years. And that fight is reportedly going okay. And Afghan officials say, today, we're feeling good about finishing the job. But the same isn't necessarily true in parts of Southeast Asia. Indonesia, Malaysia, and the Philippines are all battling ISIS on their home turfs, too. And those countries said today, in the wake of Baghdadi's death, they're concerned about possible attacks by ISIS fighters, including lone wolf attacks, that could be hard to stop. So what's the skim? The death of the leader of ISIS marks a major development in the U.S. war on terror. Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi didn't just inspire fellow terrorists with his words, but he was considered a pretty effective organizer who helped ISIS rise to prominence and become the world's foremost terror threat in recent years. But his death may not mean the end of ISIS. The terror group Baghdadi created has already spread well beyond his former caliphate, and the battle against those offshoot groups could drag on for years. And whereas the internet helped spread Baghdadi's initial call to arms, it could help his message live on after his death. So this likely isn't the last time we talk about ISIS here, even if this past weekend marked the end of Baghdadi. Coming up, why history could be made this week in the show-me state. That's next. Shopping for a used car can be stressful. That's where CarMax comes in. They rule out millions of cars with their vetting process and select only the best ones to become CarMax certified. 
Plus, they have a seven-day money-back guarantee. So if you change your mind, you can bring the car back for a full refund, no questions asked. It's horsepower with zero remorse power. Discover how easy car buying can be at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way it should be. Missouri could soon make history. There's only one clinic left standing there that can perform abortions. And after fighting for months, it could soon be forced to close making Missouri the first state in the country without access to abortion services since 1974, the year after Roe v. Wade protected a woman's right to have an abortion. So what's going on over there? Today, St. Louis's Planned Parenthood and the Missouri Department of Health each started to make their case for why the clinic's license to perform abortions should or should not be renewed. In June, Missouri refused to renew the license, so Planned Parenthood sued to stay open. A judge said the clinic can continue to perform abortions, though, while this is being hashed out. The state of Missouri says they're worried about patient safety. After an annual inspection earlier this year, the health department says the clinic didn't fix all the problems that the state found. The department claimed that the clinic failed to get informed consent from patients, and also claimed that the clinic even performed surgical abortions that didn't work so women were still pregnant. Even the state attorney general has gotten involved, saying that a woman's constitutional right to an abortion isn't necessarily a thing in Missouri. Planned Parenthood says, fact check, abortion is legal in all 50 states, and that Missouri is just trying to change the rules to block access to abortion. Missouri already has strict laws concerning who can provide abortions. Like, the state requires doctors performing the procedure to also have admitting privileges at a nearby hospital. The state also says clinics themselves have to meet the requirements of a surgical center. On top of that, Missouri recently tried to ban abortions after eight weeks, though that law was blocked by a federal judge. So all eyes are on this state commission hearing this week. St. Louis police were asked to be on hand to make sure activists on both sides of the abortion debate didn't get out of hand. If the commission sides with the state, the clinic would have to close. TBD on when? But that would reportedly mean 1.1 million women in Missouri wouldn't have a clinic that can perform abortions in their state. They'd have to cross state lines. But that's not an option for everyone. And Missouri isn't the only state with dwindling access to abortion. Five other states also only have one clinic left. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is preparing to take on its first abortion case since getting a new conservative justice last year. Sometime next year, the court will decide whether a Louisiana law requiring hospital admitting privileges, like the law on the books in Missouri, is constitutional or not. There are now just three clinics that can perform abortions in Louisiana, but this law that's up for debate could bring that number down to one. However the Supreme Court rules, it could set a brand new precedent when it comes to abortion access across the U.S. California's not having a great start to the week. The wildfires that started shredding throughout the state last week have now grown even stronger, torching about 66,000 acres of wine country north of San Francisco. That's about four times the size of Manhattan. And now there's a new wildfire further down south in Los Angeles County, which has consumed about 5,000 acres so far, and it's leading celebrities like LeBron James to have to leave their homes. Statewide, mandatory evacuations have forced almost 200,000 people out of their homes. 
And California's biggest power company is expected to cut power to over 2.5 million people. It's doing that on purpose, so power lines don't start new fires. That might not seem like a lot compared to California's population of 40 million people, but it is the largest planned power outage in state history. California Governor Gavin Newsom explained this morning why these fires are spreading so much. Diablo winds in the northern part of the state, the Santa Ana winds in the southern part of the state, combined with low humidity, create these conditions uh, and spark this kind of anxiety. For now, only about 5% of the wine country fire is contained. And the winds in Los Angeles County are forecast to remain strong, which means these wildfires could be hard to beat. Before we go today, we've got a fun fact coming to you from your computer. CNN dug this up yesterday. Last year, 26,379 people told the FBI that they'd been the victim of a phishing scam. As in, when you get an email or text asking you to please send a password or credit card info for reasons that seem reasonable. Research shows that those scams are getting better all the time. And the FBI says more people are falling for them and paying for them. The FBI says that last year, people lost nearly $50 million to phishing scams. Just another friendly reminder to be careful when you click. And that's all for Skim This. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to hit subscribe and rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to add the Skim to your morning routine, you can sign up for our free newsletter, The Daily Skim, right on our website at theskim.com. It's everything you need to know to start your day right in your inbox. 